I said certified freak seven days a week. I'm white and I've got everything I need. No one clutches their purses when they're in a room alone with me. And I can drive for any neighborhood I please. At any hour, and the police don't do a thing. So if I see a penny on the ground, I leave it alone and fucking flip it. I'm a straight white male in America. I got everything I need. I'm a guy getting paid more than a girl with a degree. And I can walk down the streets after dark, no one wants to rape me. And I can get a girl pregnant and just as easily flee. Just like my straight white male dad did to me. So if I see a penny on the ground, I leave it alone and fucking flip it. I'm a straight white male in America. I've got all the luck I need. I've got a pile of broken mirrors and I'm walking under ladders and I'm spilling tons of salt. But to me that doesn't matter because my skin and my gender and my orientation are the best things to have if you live in this nation. I recommend it highly. Hello, welcome to the Intellectual Dollar Tree. We do this show live uh, on Twitch at uh, 7 p.m. Pacific, Wednesdays. Uh, I'm producer Dave, and you can find me on Grinder. And I am HK Perrin. You can find me on Mastodon at hparrin at port87.social. And you can find me in the Twitch chat as Silfweed. I feel like we've done this before, but here is uh, Jordy Pete and uh, Ben Shapiro. Hello, everyone. I'm pleased to announce my new tour for 2024. Beginning in early February and running through June, Tammy and I and an assortment of special guests are going to visit 51 cities in the U.S. You can find out more information. I thought for a second there he was going to say 51 states. As well as accessing that would have been so much better. Ticketing information. I'm going to use the tour to walk through some of the ideas I've been working on in my forthcoming book. He is Canadian, though. We who rest Canada, the 51st state. I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> I'm thrilled to be able to do it again, and I'll be pleased to see all of you again soon. Bye-bye. I think almost all postmodernism is a form of projection. Uh, and so when they suggest that all narratives are about power dynamics... What I if I think that you're doing projection right now, little Ben? I think what they are saying is they wish to use their narrative as a power dynamic. Narrative, they understand, is the thing that drives human beings. Uh, and so what they do is they read their own... I think food is the thing that drives human beings. ...narrative like victim-victimizer into every narrative. So it must be that every narrative is driven by an underlying power substructure because their narrative, they believe, is driven by an underlying power substructure. Underlying power substructure. Is that similar to a power substation? It's like a foundation um, made of jello.
Hello, everybody. I'm talking today with Ben Shapiro. Ben and I have had occasion to speak privately and publicly a number of times, and he participated in that. I mean, you work for him. Last year. Yeah, no shit. You work. We've had a, we know you, no shit you've spoken to him. <laughs> We've been able to deepen and extend and extend the uh, dimensions of our conversation as we progressed. Today, I'm going to talk to him about the counter-enlightenment, the realization across many disciplines that empiricism and rationality are insufficient processes and modes of conceptualization to orient us in the world. I think that's an established fact now, and it's a revolutionary fact. means that we see... It's established, but also revolutionary, HK. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty sure those are mutually exclusive i've revolutionized the grocery store by selling bread (laughs) and a well-established product (laughs) through a story and so ben and i are going to talk about just exactly what that means not least about the fact that the left in particular the radical left has insisted that the fundamental story that the world should be viewed through and is inevitably viewed through is one of power. That leads to the victim-victimizer narrative that characterized characterized Marxism and that now so bitterly characterizes whatever the hell it is that we have in front of us now, this demented pastiche of postmodernism and uh, kind of meta-Marxism that makes everyone either a victim or a victim. What exactly is he referring to there? Well, he's always been, so he's sort of cleaning house for himself in a way right because he was for a while talking about postmodern modern neo-marxism and it was pointed out to him that marxism is actually a modernist idea and that um one of the things that you could say about postmodernism is that it rejects or that it is skeptical of grand narratives like marxism okay you could say that about it it doesn't mean you have to, and I didn't have to, and I didn't even really know much about any of this shit until fucking we started doing this show. I just thought I was like, why is this guy so mad at that ugly painting? Like, honestly, when people were talking about postmodernism, I was like, I mean, I don't like the paintings either. They're, they're ugly as fuck, but what are you talking about? So, uh, postmodern Marxism is kind of an oxymoron then? Not necessarily, but it could be said that the one of the things about postmodernism is that it is skeptical of some of the more grand narratives put forth by modernist philosophers. I don't have the um, knowledge nor the patience to try to explain it any, any further than that. Okay. It's, it's been, it's been a day. I can't believe I picked this. I should have picked something less frustrating, like a a trigonometry (laughs) video or something. (laughs) that in detail and so if you're interested in that then this is the talk for you so happy new year ben hey thank you happy day ben yeah great to see you hey so i thought we would um avoid the political at least to some degree for the majority of this conversation i actually have some oh yeah i'm sure they're not going to get into politics and so um i'm gonna are they they gonna like fuck are they going to like take their clothes off like a like on a sexy video call? Are you I hope not. That would be I, infinitely better yeah. than what we're about to watch. Yeah, but I like my Twitch channel. <laughs> <laughs> we 
Just put like one big sensor bar over it. Who oh, can't do that? I want your... Oh, big sensor yeah. bar? Yeah, we could just listen to it. Here's the first thing <laughs> I've been thinking about. So I'm writing this new book called We Who Wrestle With God. And one of its presumptions is that, I suppose, this is something I just talked about with John Verveke too. We've been conceptualizing it, I suppose, as a counter-enlightenment. So here's what I think is going on at the deepest level. So the... Enlightenment was predicated on the idea that we could orient ourselves in the world either empirically as a matter, of course, with regards to the data at hand or rationally using a priori structures of logic. Also, this is a dumb way to talk about the Enlightenment because during the time that like there was no like Enlightenment boss going, you will use a priori structures of logic. It was just that philosophy and to some extent, like early, like, and to some extent, like early science was doing those things, but that wasn't like the, that wasn't like the marching orders. You know what I mean? Like the way he's talking about it is almost like it was like planned, like, like that it didn't, that it didn't just come out of like, like, you know, more modern events happening and having to try to figure them out without, um, suggesting that it was the spirits doing it that's Mm -hmm. like some part of it but it isn't like it isn't like somebody decided that and everybody just did it it's i don't know i'm having a hard time even like explaining my major critique of what he's saying here probably because what he's saying is like like you were saying before um before all the pixels went away in a in a show that doesn't exist uh (laughs) 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 that now, now I forgot what I'm saying. Maximally pretentious. Yes. As a combination yeah. of both. But that turns out to be wrong, which is what the postmodernists figured out. And it wasn't just the postmodernists. The AI engineers figured it out at the same time. The cognitive scientists. Oh, but I can't believe it. Did you know that postmodern? <laughs> okay, the cognitive scientists might have been there when post. Again, but like the fucking, they didn't just wake up one day and be like, oh shit, let's do postmodernism. <laughs> the AI engineers? Yeah, that's, I don't know when that started. It's kind of, the hard. AI engineers are just mathematicians. Well, hold on. I don't care. I don't care if they're, I don't care if they're fucking prestidigitation masters. The, the timeline is just so incredibly off here. Like they don't give a shit about philosophy. Maybe they do. Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. But the, in the time frame he's talking about, there were no AI engineers. Like, does he think that there's like little babies in the computer that like some philosophers are just teaching how to philosophize? No, it's just fucking math. Well, and you get also, a bunch of math. HK, it does. Going, I, I don't. I don't care if there were philosophers in the computer. The time frame he's talking <laughs> about, there were no AI engineers. Like, okay. Like it well, doesn't matter he said AI ju- engineers now, right? But they could be a juggler. There could be jugglers in your computer. Actually, there are jugglers in the computer. That's, they're juggling them. They're juggling bits. Affective neuroscientists, people who are studying narrative, juggling electrons is my passion. Problem with the empirical and rational hypotheses. Start with empirical. Is that we can't orient ourselves by the data alone because there's an infinite plethora of data. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's but fucking ignore it now. They're fucking we don't know everything, so why try to know anything? An infinite plethora of data. So we 
we can't orient ourselves on the data alone. Is that what he said? Yes. I feel like he's very wrong. Well, depending on what the problem is, you're going to use things other than like raw data to figure it out. But like the, the logical conclusion of what he's saying is like the very thing he criticizes about the straw man of postmodernism that he's saying, well, the facts don't matter, right? Like you take what he's saying to its logical conclusion. And now he's do, doing the thing he used to criticize postmodernism for uh, ostensibly doing. <laughs> but like, even if you take like, even if you're charitable with his argument and say like, okay, he's being facetious. He's just saying like, there's too much data for one person to process and consider all the data. Like, I don't think that's true. Like, yeah, there's too much data for one person to learn how to like, uh, how like literally every subject works. But like, that's why we have experts in specific subjects that understand almost all if not all of the data on that subject well i think your i think your description of an expert is probably a little little off there the expert doesn't know everything about the subject that's crazy that's why we have expert well, consensus. depends on how broadly you define subject right but that's why we have expert consensus is that like that groups yeah, i'm of talking people... about like an expert in a subject that is very right, narrowly I... defined okay experts know everything let's move on <laughs> there's no way of wending our way through the data without prioritizing it in terms of importance. And that can't be done using empiricism per se, or even rationally, because you have to specify a goal, you have to bring in the domain of values. Now, my hypothesis is at the moment, working hypothesis is that this structure that we use to prioritize the facts so that we can navigate forward is when described a story. A story is a representation of a hierarchy of attentional priority. Now, the reason this is revolutionary... Ben has no idea what Jordan is saying. <laughs> yeah, what exactly does that mean? The structure that we use to understand facts is a story? He I don't was, understand was, what that means. He was saying, like, prioritizing the facts. But, I mean, I, I guess eventually you just got to fucking, you just got to arbitrarily make some kind of decision, I suppose. But that's fine. Like I, I do understand what all of the individual words that he used meant. But when strung together in that way, they sound like the ramblings of a lunatic. Yeah, Ben has no idea what he's talking about. Absolutely not. Ben has no fucking clue what he's listening to here. Okay. I think is so I'm not alone then. It puts the story back at the center of the stage. Okay, so the I'd like your comments about that first, and then <laughs> good luck, Ben. I feel sorry. Everybody, everybody, we're rooting for Tiny Dancer Ben here, trying to figure out what the fuck he just listened to. <laughs> I will never root for Ben Shapiro. There is there is a chance Ben's just gonna go and talk about something else. Watch, Ben's just gonna fucking Probably. act like nothing was just said. Watch. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, he's not wrong then. To the next part of this. I mean, I, I think that that's totally true. Uh, when you say that you have to have some oh, okay. value totally frame true. to determine exactly how you view the data, that's that's obviously true because, as you say, there's an entire ocean of data out there, and how you prioritize which data is more important is dependent on on how you value that data. That's true 
you know, in everything from abortion to, you know, the trolley problem. And any time. I don't think that's true. It's not how you value the data. Like, I don't prioritize, like, when I'm determining whether to believe something, right? I don't prioritize, like, do I value this data more than some other data? I think you I determine, do. Like, is it trustworthy? I, is that I, what he means? I think that you're uh, uh, giving us a version of like rationalism or, or uh, logical sort of um, logical inquiry that, um, that I make fun of. Actually, I think we all do that. We, we all come to everything with like, we all are going to put more weight on certain things uh, as we evaluate a set of claims based on the things that we care about. But there's no problem with that. Nobody that nobody ever suggested that that means you're wrong or that you're there's no like there's no you have to do that or you go crazy. Well, I think that would predispose you to being wrong. Right, because well, then that we're would all be, wrong. Do you then? Uh, you're the only well, one yes, who you're the only one wrong. who examines everything. You, your no, brain, I don't. your brain works differently than I'm. Just as fallible as everyone else. Come on. Well, then what I'm saying is like if okay, you go ahead. if you if you take data as like what like if you value data more because, for example, it confirms your bias, then you're going to inevitably believe data that is untrustworthy just because it validates your your bias right so i don't think that most of us and i i would love to get uh, uh fucking bogged down in this it would be a lot of fun i don't think most of us just go look at raw data on anything i think that that's a a, a lie that uh, a lot of new atheists and skeptics told themselves about how they make decisions and how they decide what to believe about the world around them and i think most most um, psychologists would uh uh, probably agree with me you are true practically no one looks at the raw data <laughs> so i think that <clears throat> i think that the 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 reality of it lies somewhere in between in okay. between just straight up confirmation bias and looking at the fucking data and just importing data and spitting out the right decision or whatever. Like, <laughs> I think the reality actually lies somewhere in between and our values, the things we care about. It doesn't mean it, it doesn't mean that we that that's not to say that it's just all confirmation bias. It's just like, like, for example, there are things I don't care about. And so I'm not going to look at data on them. <laughs> like, and that's fine. Yeah. Some sort of dilemma about what human beings should do. The should is a question of values, and you can have as many facts as you want on the utilitarian after effects of that. But even the questions of utilitarianism are dependent on questions of values at the end. Yep. And that, that's why utilitarianism as a sort of standalone philosophy tends to fail. And when you say that the, the, the fill in there is story because story is a representation of values in an easily understandable way. That 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 is absolutely true. I mean, the the fact is that what a story is is by nature something that is being told to you, and there's something deeply human about that. Or like, you could be telling the story to someone else, Ben. <laughs> tells you a story. You don't tend to question the story in the way a journalist would question a story. When someone says, "I'm going to tell you a story now," you listen all the way through to the story with reliance on the storyteller. And that innately is an act of faith. And so when you do that, what you're really saying is that I'm assuming the set of values for the sake of this story 
I'm assuming the set of values that undergirds and is embedded in the story. And then we can operate from those premises. But that's also crazy because sometimes the story is to instill a set of values in you. Again, he's just been, it could go either way. Story might be because you believe a set of values and you enjoy the story, but it could also be that the story is, uh, what are they, for like children, uh, little fairy tales. They used to be kind of, they used to be like Grimm's fairy tales because they were grim, but now they're just telling his moral tales. Like at the yeah, end of G.I. Joe, and it's like the, the moral, of the, at the end of G.I. Joe, it's like the moral of the story or whatever the fuck it was, you know, yep. like, <laughs> knowing is half the battle. Yeah, they're parables. <laughs> This is, this is so fucking, like, this is so crazy. And what makes a story good or bad to, to pretty much everyone is our innate understanding of the under, underlying coherence and values that are embedded in the story. Oh, okay, so, so that touches on a couple of other things that I think have become much more clear recently, too. So I was playing with chat GPT yesterday, and... Oh, my God, we need Jordan GPT. I have a... He had to think about that for a while. I'd call it a Beef and Benzo's GPT. Who's an expert at large language models. That was a, a tough now, name for him to get large through. Large language models work essentially is that they calculate conditional probabilities. And so you could imagine that there's a pretty high conditional probability that an S will follow an E, for example, if you look at how letters are segregated. So I think he's talking about, uh, they're called Merkle chains, I think. Oh, that's not what he's talking about, HK. Like, come on, let's let's, let's not pretend this guy knows well, what he's talking about. Markov chains, thank you. Yeah, uh, like that's statistical probability. Like he's like twelve years behind on AI. And also, he's acting. He's saying, "Well, the S might come after the E." Now he's just doing the spelling bee, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> get out of here, dude. It's not figuring out how to spell the words. It already knows how to spell the words. It's a large language model. In that model are words. You Yeah, like it doesn't even use words. It uses tokens which translate to words. So, he's wrong on so many counts. Low probability that X will follow Z. And so, you can you can model words based on the statistical likelihood of the juxtaposition of letters. But it's not predicting spelling. You can model Word yeah, you can ask it to like make up words where X follows Z. And then word to phrase and phrase to sentence and sentence to sentence and paragraph. I don't know if it'll understand you because it knows that the letter is Z. The letters Z and Z are spelled the same way. It's just a Canadian and UK thing versus the US. I'm not going to hit him on just saying Z because that's what people in Canada say. But I'm American, and we do everything right. <laughs> I've a I'm just kidding. I, I fucking hate relationship between the U.S. system. Words. Could we maybe bring yeah. things back in a little bit? If that would that be okay? Pretty much every level of of possible statistical relationship. So it's not just word to word like the old Markov chains. It's word to fourth word and word to fifth word and word to tenth word. And, and we, we, we actually have no idea how deep the models go. The answer is they go deep enough so that the output that they produce is sufficiently indistinguishable from human output so that we find it acceptable as such. That's really the criteria. But, but that could also just describe Jordan Peterson. This is very cool, Ben, because when I talked to Sam Harris, one of the things he said to me 
repeatedly, and he said such things to other people, is that our interpretations of narratives are arbitrary. So he kind of goes. Oh, I thought he was going to go. When I talked to Sam Harris, one of the things he said to me repeatedly was, "I am a large language model, and as such, I cannot, <laughs> I cannot answer that prompt." <laughs> Sam Harris was like, "He what he said to me is, we'll be able to put technology directly into our brains." Trying to interpret <laughs> biblical stories, for example, all you're doing is reading into them. Right, It's a projection that the story as such has no intrinsic meaning. But I think that this is not only wrong, but now, but now demonstrated to be wrong because what the AILLM systems can do is map out the relationship between words and concepts statistically. So now we have an empirical validation for the Freudian or Jungian <laughs> symbol. So yesterday, for example, no, one of the things that you I don't know, remember what happened yesterday. Shut the fuck up. Stories you see this in Disney movies, for example, is that a character like a witch, which is a from a Jungian perspective, a symbol of the negative feminine, that'd be associated with nature and chaos and the unknown and darkness and fecundity and like there's a web of associated ideas, and you might say, well. Those associations are just arbitrary. But now we can say, well, no, they're not. I mean, who says that witches are associated with negativity? Yeah, all my friends are witches. Like, I have enjoyed literally every depiction of a witch that I have seen in any media ever. And there are good witches in some stories. I even enjoy the bad ones. Yeah, they, 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 they got drip. I mean, the, the witches in Hocus Pocus? fucking awesome i love those ladies entire linguistic corpus you can map out the semantic different distance between concepts and that means that there's going to be clusters of concepts and a cluster of concepts is no different than an archetype or a symbol and so now we have at at hand the possibility of an empirical mapping of such things and we've been playing with these systems so we've designed systems for example that can interpret dreams so you can type in your what? dream and the system will tell you what it means. You might say, <laughs> really? No, 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 no. I mean, it dream meaning. Isn't that like what, like, like astrologers do? Crystal. Does the system, is it a computer with a crystal ball on top of it? Jordy P. <laughs> <laughs> Crystal balls are dangerous, by the way. If you get a real one, cover that shit when you go to bed. If there's a window in the room, you can burn your fucking oh, that's house right. down with that shit. You could absolutely start a fire with a crystal ball. And I would say that's it's not. Do not put it close to a window. Every image in a dream exists within a framework of meaning. The meaning is something like is something like statistical distance from a web of associated meanings. If you flesh out that web of associated meanings, that's no different than delving more deeply into the substructure of the dream. That's no different than a formal analysis of a text, you know, that a real literary critic whose mind has been shaped in some ways the same way that an LLM model has been shaped <laughs> would, would. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <sighs> hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Oops, I pressed the wrong button here. Hold on, hold on, hold on. What does that mean? So LLMs just learn from what humans say. So like, an, if you ask an LLM, like, hey, interpret this dream for me, 
It's just going to say what humans say dreams mean. Which is bullshit because dreams don't mean anything. You're not even supposed to remember them. They are nonsensical. You fucking leave me alone. (laughs) So someone with a great corpus of literary knowledge is going to be able to perform the same kind of analysis as an LLM. And none of that's arbitrary. Okay, so the reason I'm pointing to all this is to... How long until we have an LLM MLM? So you tell me what you think about this. So let's say that we've reached... I don't know. LLMs don't have money, so I don't think they could be part of an MLM. story is primary. So there's an... They could run an MLM, though. ...of value weights through which you look at the world. That constitutes your character and your ethical presuppositions. If I told a story about how that, if I gave an account of how that pattern made itself manifest in the real world, that would be a story. And I can infer from the story what your weights are, and I can use them to adjust mine. Okay, so so let's say that all seems appropriate. And I don't well, think Let's say that all seemed, well, that's, you're making a big fucking let's say right there. All that seemed like it didn't make any fucking sense. This has been absolutely demonstrated in multiple disciplines simultaneously in the last 30 years, and that it's culminated in the large language model um, demonstration, which is an unbelievably compelling demonstration. Okay, so let's say now we've agreed that the story is primary. Now, that's what the postmodernists basically concluded in the 1960s. But here's what they did. They said the story's primary, Then, which was a great observation and a brilliant deduction, but then they said, and the primary story is victim-victimizer, right? And that's a, that's a strange twist. Well, it's more like an analysis of power and its, its use and how it's imposed upon others more than like victim-victimizer. And you can be both. Like I was saying, like these, you can boil it down to victim victimizer, but you are removing so much of the context and the, the, uh, the rest of the argument, the rest of the metaphor that you, you make it absurd. Well, and you know, you're reducing the entire, uh, the entire philosophy to something absurd. And to be fair, like postmodernism isn't really a coherent philosophy as it is like a, an era essentially of uh, philosophical thought. So that's just, I feel like when you, when you do this this too, go ahead. When you do this and when you take a, a a field of uh, philosophy or when you take a, an argument that has a lot of, of structure and uh, pieces and you boil it down to something absurd like that, you know, you boil it down to the point where it's inaccurate, where rather than fighting some sort of, you know, steel armored argument, you're rather fighting uh, some sort of like a, like a, like maybe a straw, a straw man. Well, and it's just, that makes sense. Yeah, philosophers always disagree with each other anyway, so it's it's a sort of um it's sort of like 
It's sort of like suggesting that um, the music of the 90s was all trance, right? That's sort of what he's doing here, even though there was like mm-hmm. that the music of the late 90s was all, you know, techno. And it's like, well, no, there that was just there. Um, but nobody invited Jordy Pete. He, you know, those if you don't know, you don't go kind of warehouse parties. Nobody invited Jordy Pete, that's for sure. And Ben would have gone there and immediately <laughs> called the cops, so nobody invited him either. Marxism that most of them were already encapsulated in. Now, I've been criticized for my views on postmodernism, my assumption that it's a form of Marxism. And so here's what I think Marxism and postmodernism share. And here's how I think they're different. And this is a good thing for conservatives to know, eh? Because so they they share the victim-victimizer narrative. And that in itself isn't Marxist. That's a variant of the story of Cain and Abel. It's an ancient... It's the ancient way of viewing the world through the lens of resentment. And Marxism was a variant of that. Now, the postmodernists dispensed with Marxism, and they did that partly. Okay, so this is is just, there's a story and somebody got fucked over. That's a pretty old story. That's like like every story, like somebody, (laughs) like, you don't have conflict in stories if somebody's not getting fucked over, right? Like. So, like, any time in a story where someone is any sort of victim of anything, that's a Cain and Abel story? Is that what he's saying? Yeah, anytime anybody gets fucked over, you couldn't have had that without Cain and Abel. Okay, yeah. I, <laughs> wow. Just, wow. Nobody ever got fucked over in Greek mythology. People like what a, and show how what an awful view. And catastrophic, by necessity, Marxism became. Now, with all those he would re- he would be a really bad movie critic. Did Marxism? Marxism? They didn't want to. Give I would up. actually pay to watch him uh, do like movie critique. So they kept the victim victimizer <laughs> narrative, and they turned it into something multi-dimensional, right? That would be the intersectional postmodernism. I would do benzos and watch the X Files with Jordan Peterson, where you can be a victim or a victimizer on any dimension of comparison, and all of them simultaneously. So it's like a meta-Marxism. It's like it's like the so you can be a victim in one scenario and a victimizer in another. Is that what he's saying? Yes, that sounds perfectly reasonable, right? And that's because does he think you can't? That's because these are like fluid categories that aren't like you're not. Yeah, these are like fluid categories that are very much based on uh, the thing that's happening around you and what maybe what happened yesterday. I don't remember what happened yesterday, but my, my, my problem is that I'm overworked and underpaid and probably overfed and I sleep too much. Um, but Jordan Peterson doesn't remember yesterday because uh, fucking, I don't know. Would you remember yesterday if you, if you were in this kind of state? But like what I'm saying here is that like the ideas of, of <clears throat> like power and its exercise, which I'm going to substitute in as better words for victim and victimizer. They're not new ideas. That's like literally that's what political power is. It's the Mm -hmm. ability to, um, you know, ideally exert your power for the greater good. And, you know, more realistically eh, for your own personal gain and the gain of others uh, around you. And if you happen to do something good for somebody, well, I guess that's a decent uh, side effect of it, but that's like not new. This is not like a, not like a new, like Marx didn't come up with it either. He even said Cain and Abel. Like, well, then why are you mad at it? You love the Bible. <laughs> like, what the fuck? There are stories of struggle and heroism. And like somebody was saying in chat, Greek mythology. 
a lot of fucking going on too. And also like it is it's very obvious that like in different situations you can be a a victim and a a victimizer, you know, across multiple situations. But even in one situation you can be both a victim and a victimizer. Yeah, like let's say you're a shitty boss and then your boss is shitty and your boss's boss is shit and there's just a fucking the shit rolling downhill. Well, then the only everybody everybody except for the very person at the bottom is a victim and a victimizer. But then that person leaves work and then goes and beats somebody up at like at a bar or something. Now they're the victim. Like it, you know what I'm saying? Yep. It's like it's this the it's the shit rolls downhill, like or uphill yep. or in wh- whichever way it spreads out might explode depending on what's going on. But here's the here's the difference, and this is so stunning. It it just hit me hard this week. The Marxists insisted that the primary dimension of victim-victimizer, and and really the only one worth considering, given their universal human vision, was economic. And the bloody postmodernists put I mean, money is power, so (laughs) would you disagree? Intersectional hierarchy. Do you know any billionaires who are super victimized? Was economic. And the bloody postmodernists put that at the bottom of the intersectional hierarchy. So, in weirdly, although they accepted and propagated the victim-victimizer narrative, they inverted the hierarchy so that, see, you can think about someone like Claudine Gay. Like, there's no way you can make the case. Okay, that wait, so what, was, what would then be at the top in the postmodernist? Like, what is he talking about? What? So I think we're going to... We're, we'll go back again because I keep trying okay. to get this whole thing that he's saying here as as one piece. Okay. Narrative, they inverted the hierarchy so that see you can think about someone like Claudine Gay. Like, there's no way you can make the case that Claudine Gay was oppressed economically. In fact, economically, coming from a rich family as she did, she's clearly a victimizer. But that doesn't count because for some incomprehensible reason maybe and this is where i would like particularly like your comments the postmodern victim victimizer types they abandoned the economic issue that's why you like okay i know what he's trying to say he's trying to say that in in marxism the only thing that matters is money is economics and that's because it's it's a philosophy of economy like, it's not trying to pretend to be a philosophy of anything else. And he's saying that with postmodernism, there are other things besides economic philosophy. Like, okay. But that doesn't mean that the economic philosophy is at the bottom. Like, just because someone can be rich and can still be a victim doesn't mean that their, their wealth doesn't matter. Yeah, like, a, I think he's just wrong here in saying that, like, you know, they both have a pyramid and the pyramids are opposite. Like, that's just untrue. Communism, right. you know, Marxism is, a, it solely focuses on economics because it's an economic philosophy. So, and he was talking about Claudine Gay. She got a, she was, uh, I think, Yale, Harvard, Yale, something. She was the uh, the head of that. And she uh, got removed after, I don't know, the Palestinian protests or whatever, and Congress called her in and like yelled at her. 
and uh, she didn't have what they thought was the right answer. So in that case, yeah, you are on the power hierarchy. If the Congress wants to, um, Congress and like a giant media machine wants to make a demon out of you. And sometimes maybe it doesn't matter how much money you have. And it's not like she's a billionaire, right? Like, yeah, I would say it does matter how much money she has and she didn't have enough. Even though, like, I think the most compelling case you can make for the victim-victimizer narrative is on the grounds of economic inequality. Now, I'm not saying you can make an overwhelmingly powerful case for it even there, but if you were going to make a case, that would be, you got to give Marx credit for at least identifying that as perhaps the cardinal dimension of potentially tragic inequality. Wait a minute. Now you can do victim victimizer narrative. Like there's a much easier way to do it. Like uh, fucking you come home every day and your partner whoops your ass. Boom. Victim victimizer. It's like the easiest one. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So, so what do you think about that? The prioritization of Marxism as, or the victim victimizer narrative as the cardinal orienting story of mankind. And then this weird inversion of Marxism that characterizes the radicals that we see today. I mean, I certainly think that there, there's a lot of support for that idea, right? There, there, there are a lot of philosophers who, for example, have treated Marxism not as an outgrowth of a capitalist economic theory, but actually as a sort of perverse and twisted outgrowth of a misread of Christianity. That, that mm -hmm. Christianity suggesting that the meek will inherit the earth, but, the, but on an economic level, the meek aren't inheriting the earth. Therefore, there must be some form of class exploitation that's going on. And so reading Marxism as a weird offshoot of Christianity rather than a weird offshoot of capitalism is sort Yeah, but that's like the fucking, that's just some weirdo that you know. Like, I'm pretty sure Marx was an atheist. One way of, of seeing that in a misread of Christianity. Yeah, that is, that is really stretching it. I mean, he's just trying to, he, I mean, he's like, okay, listen, <clears throat> I got to say some weird shit here too. Did some of this, right? Nietzsche actually sort of suggested this when he when he treated right, Christianity right, yes. as a perverse version of a victimizer, victim narrative that replaced the idea of good, strong, and beautiful, and weak, nasty, and terrible, right? That his, his moral prism was the idea that just because something is good and strong doesn't mean that it's necessarily bad. And he was creating a, what I think is a, a perverse view of Christianity as arguing against that and then creating a victim, victimizer narrative in opposition to that. Uh, when, when, when you talk about the postmodernists, I think one of the things the postmodernists uh, are doing is, I, I think almost all postmodernism is a form of projection. Uh, and so when they suggest that all narratives are about power dynamics, I think what they are saying is they wish to use their narrative as a power dynamic. Narrative, they understand, is the thing that drives human beings. Uh, and so what they do is they read their own willingness to drive human beings via a narrative like victim-victimizer into every narrative. So it must be that every narrative is driven by an underlying power substructure because their narrative, they believe, is driven by an underlying power substructure. And I think, obviously... That's wrong. How many structures and substructures are there in, in this, this thing? Is it like a fucking, is it like a fucking space station? Like what's going on? I think that, that, that also comes from a, a postmodernism. Again, it's sort of a weird perverse offshoot of the enlightenment in the sense that if you're talking about an a priori, a priori view of the world, which is that everything that you have arrived at in society, everything that preexists you is effectively arbitrary or a version of crammed down power. That there's no validity to the world that you inherit, which is, I think, one of the the premises. Ooh, Ben's doing that thing I hate. Look, he's got a lapel mic on, and he's also got a show mic in front of him. <laughs> I fucking hate that. Like, just you're not using both of them. 
the <laughs> changes that came about because of the Enlightenment, but also one of the premises of postmodernism, which is you get to wreck all the systems because you were born into an unfair system driven by I mean, by it's, it's two white power. men. They have to have a microphone in front of them. That's the great lie. And so... Oh, wait, Jordy doesn't have a microphone. Have narrative. I mean, this, is, of course, is the, the great kind of metafailing. This isn't a podcast, then. Is that in its desire to destroy all narratives as forms of power, they have to derive their own narrative in order to do that, right? Postmodernism is self-defeating on the very root intellectual level. But that doesn't mean that it's not effective. And again, I, I think a lot of this lies, a lot of the, the, the Enlightenment, the post-Enlightenment, a lot of this lies in, frankly, a perverse misreading of biblical narratives. So, so let me touch on that one. Okay, so I just wrote about the parable of the unjust steward. Now, it's a very interesting parable. So the story is about this employer, essentially, and he has an employee, a servant, but an employee for all intents. Well, yes. No, those are two different. Go ahead. Yeah, those, those are different things. <laughs> but go off. He threatens to fire him for misusing his funds. And the employee goes out to some of his subcontractors and he offers them this deal where if they pay off a certain proportion of their debts immediately so that he has some money so that he can move forward uh, in good faith, apart from this side deal with his employer, then everything will be set straight. And so he does that and he generates enough capital to satisfy his master. Now, there's a certain dishonesty in his maneuverings, but Christ says to his followers that the children of darkness essentially are sometimes wiser than the children of light and that there's some utility in serving mammon properly as long as you don't prioritize that over services of what is to the highest. It's a very, very interesting parable. And I'm sure it is, but I'm not sure that like he um, relayed it in any sort of way that a human being would understand. <laughs> yeah, what the fuck did that mean? That, that, that was not a parable. That was like half of a story. And it also described a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> yeah, or maybe embezzlement. <laughs> uh, 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 illegal, illegal use of funds. <laughs> Shady big business practices. As you mentioned, there's a reading of Christianity that has what you might argue is like an anti-materialist, anti-capitalist, pro-socialist bent. But I believe that a close reading of... I mean, God yes, is, if you read the words that Jesus Christ said, yes, you get that impression because that was the words Jesus Christ used puts that interpretation completely off to the side. There is an emphasis that the those who claim false power will be held to account for that, and that those who are just and good but marginalized will be brought to the center. But that, that has nothing to do with an essential narrative of like fundamental oppression. It's, it's a much deeper idea than that, that true virtue will be rewarded and false virtue punished, even if the false virtue is associated with material prosperity, right? That the truth will be revealed. So Christ's point in that particular parable is that the discipline that you can learn 
well, managing, let's say, money or managing money for someone else, managing material prosperity is a virtue that is, first of all, genuinely a virtue and that can be a precursor virtue to service to the highest possible good, which it should be a subset of anyways. And then, but in the story, he just told the for, the person fucking lied to everybody and fucking like ran. They were, it was like, oh shit, I'm out of money. Oh man, my invest. Oh, one of my oh, one of my people is asking me to make them whole, and I don't have the money. Got to get more investments. Um, that sounds like Bernie Madoff. Yeah the the half of a story he just told. Yeah, the the story of Bernie Madoff. It can't just be tossed off casually as you know, all service to material prosperity or life more abundant is because of its materialism or its capitalism to be regarded with extreme suspicion. You know, and it's also not money that's regarded, it's not money that's regarded as the primary sin in the Gospels either. It's love of money, and that means the prioritization of money over God. It doesn't mean the pursuit of life more abundant. You know, this is also a place, I think, what where the the Jewish tradition has got things very right, because my sense is there's a laudable emphasis in the Jewish tradition on the goodness of a good life, right? The material, present, physical goodness of a good life. And that is different than that spiritualized reading of Christianity that makes everything in the material world like damned and corrupt by, by definition, yeah, it's a very weird take on on Christianity. That Christianity is all about vows of poverty. I mean, g- given the development of the Western world as the richest civilization in the history of the world, is it, and driven largely by religious Christians. I mean, if you look at the generation of, um, well, it's not if you consider like what Jesus said. Like, if you ignore what Jesus said, then sure, it's it's a a weird interpretation of Christianity. But if you consider the words that Jesus is supposed to have said, then no, it's a perfectly valid interpretation of Christianity based on the words of Jesus. I mean, like baked into this, that the thing people forget is like a lot of people uh, throughout history, it used to be, by the way, that you weren't even allowed to read the fucking Bible, that the fucking priest or whatever was supposed to be the one to tell you what was in it. Um, And now anybody can read the Bible, but that doesn't mean that somebody who claims to be a Christian has ever done so. And like they don't go to church, probably. Like this is this is this is like a um, the way they're. Um, I'm having a, I'm having a rough time with this. Like trying to trying to like put into words what I'm trying to say. Oh, um, uh, Christianity is a cultural and a political identity uh, much more than it is a belief in what is uh, said in the Bible. Oh, there we go. Yep, and it probably always always has been. Probably, I mean, for yeah. example, this is all religious men. I mean, John J. Rockefeller is attending church and, and dedicating churches. I mean, like th- this is th- this kind of bizarre notion that you know Christianity is in direct conflict with capitalism or property rights or anything like that. That's obviously it's obviously foolish. Christianity, maybe not, but That's Christ, say, yes. That, that Marxism is a bastardization in many ways of a misread of of the Bible, and I think that that so many of our problems because let's be real about this: the Bible shaped the modern world, and so. That means that even the perverse offshoots of the Bible shape yeah, the modern yeah. world. And so even, even the victim victimizer narratives that we see in the Bible, many of them are deliberately or, or maybe not deliberately missing the point. I mean, when, when people look at the Cain versus Abel narrative and they say that, that what that story is actually about, for example, is 
Cain being being you know he's he's vicious and he's and he treats himself as a victim and Abel's the victimizer and therefore he kills he kills Abel and therefore he's punished. The reality is what that story is about is him recognizing the sin of that. I think that the Cain and Abel story, what's fascinating about the Cain and Abel story is everybody misses the end of the Cain and Abel story. The, the very end of that story is not just Cain going wandering in the wilderness. It's that he's the first person in the Bible who actually does repentance before God. He says, I've sinned. And then God marks him with the mark of Cain. And the mark of Cain is meant to protect him, right? The mark of Cain is not meant to mark him for murder. He says, I'm going to wander. I'm being an outcast. People are going to kill me. And God says, I'm going to give you this mark specifically to protect you because you've repented of the victim victimizer sin. What? America is currently experiencing an invasion. A lot of people. Of the victim victimizer sin? That's what he repented for? What? If you associate success of any sort with power, oppression, and corruption, and we should say that when success goes wrong, by the way, it does go wrong in the direction of power, right? So that power is a corrupting force, and there is a narrative of power. It's just it's not the fundamental narrative. When Cain tears down his ideal, right, because his ideal is clearly Abel, it's Abel he wants to be, and he wants the relationship between Abel and the divine to characterize his life, and then he destroys that completely in a fit of absolute spite and resentment, and that's when he goes to God and says that his punishment is more than he can bear, and that's because if you do tear down the ideal, like if you identify success with oppression, then, well, all your success instantly becomes nothing but evidence of your evil. Well, you can't imagine as a psychologist. But success at what? And you're not a psychologist anymore. Understanding how reward works. I can't imagine a conceptual scheme more devastating to the function of the natural reward systems than to associate the attainment of a goal with what's most malevolent. Right? There's nothing worse you can do than that. And, you know, to give the devil his due. So one of the things I've been thinking, so tell me what you think about this. I've been writing about this with Jonathan Paggio. We wrote an article for the oh, art. Oh, Jonathan Paggio is the guy who, uh, remember we were watching that thing where they were in that weird coffee shop-like place and the guy said, oh, uh, demons, like literal physical demons. They gave him the fucking, they gave him that, like, you know, you mean figurative. And he's like, no, physical. Yeah, real, real demons. You don't mean like real. No, I mean real demons that really exist in our world on the earth. Yeah, it's that guy. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right. This topic, Pajo walked me through one of the images in the Book of Revelation. In the Book of Revelation, you see the whore of Babylon on the back of the beast that represents the state. This multi-headed beast. So the multi-headed beast is sort of a degenerate version of the unity of the state. It started to deteriorate, so now it sprouts multiple heads, right? Diversity heads, you might say. Or diversity uh, heads, huh? And I mean that in some real way, because if the state uh, is... There we go. <laughs> oh, God. God damn it. We're just going to forget. We're just going to let that go. We're just going to leave it there. Okay. It's fragmented. And a fragment of I'm feeling very impatient right now. And I don't have the patience to try to fucking unpack what the shit he was just saying. Heads and the heads can fight. So there's the demented state. On top of the demented state, on its back is the whore of Babylon. And so the way that we've read that is that when the patriarchal structure deteriorates, so when masculinity itself becomes corrupt, the corruption of femininity accompanies it, and the 
the the destruction of femininity is something like the disinhibition of female sexuality. It, maybe it's oh, women be whores, uh, women 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 be fucking, and that's the destruction of femininity. Women having sex is the destruction of femininity. They, they be hoes. Wow! Holy shit! Hold on, hold on. <laughs> Uh, where'd it go? There's some whores in this house. <laughs> Transformation into what a, a fucking wild thing to say. Think Jesus. About, think about that in terms of OnlyFans and online pornography and all of that, that, that immediate, um, or even the selling of women in short-term relationships for sexual purposes. Women can sell themselves just like pimps can sell them. And so, so there's this correspondence. He means okay, did he mean... Did he mean sex work right there? That's I, what he meant, right? I think so. Short-term relationships? That is <laughs> not how I would describe <laughs> sex work. <laughs> and uh, and there are, you know, it, it's, you know, there's different kinds of sex work. There's some sex work where um, a sex worker will have just a few clients that they do see regularly. And that is a kind of a relationship. It's a, a business relationship primarily. Yeah. Like... If I were to, uh, let's say, agree with with someone to buy a certain amount of product from from them, uh, let's say some sort of illicit substance that I wanted to light on fire in front of my face and breathe the smoke from. That's a, it's a, it's now legal. Uh, okay, so some legal substance that, that I wanted to light on fire. I wouldn't describe that as a relationship with that person. No, it's it's a it's a business transaction. And if he just means like short term, well, no, he said for compensation. That's weird, fucking weird. There's also uh, men who are sex workers. Between yeah, that's the true. beast, yep. the patriarchal beast destabilizing, and then the feminine destabilizing, and. Of course, it has to be that way because one sex can't destabilize without the other. Now, what's cool about this? One sex can't destabilize. Okay, so I think what he's saying is like if if men lose their willingness to uh, subjugate women, then women won't be subjugated. I think that's what he's saying. So the other thing, if he's like suggesting like that this exists on a societal level, it could just be that your society is starting to become unstable and it really has nothing to do with who's a man or who's a woman, right? That your society yeah. is just becoming unstable for whatever sets of reasons and people in as society becomes uh, unstable or unpredictable, people are likely to do more things that maybe Jordan Peterson would think are corrupt just to like survive in this unstable, unpredictable society. But I don't think that has anything to do with masculinity or femininity or fucking people be sleeping around or anything like that. And also I would ask him like, why then would it be a bad thing for, for masculinity to be destroyed and femininity to be destroyed in the way that he's saying that they are? To be fair, he didn't spend a lot of time explaining to you what it would mean for masculinity to be destroyed. I mean, it it sounds like he's implying that it means men not being willing to subjugate women in every aspect of society. Right, but what I'm saying is he didn't give any really, he spent a little, he spent some time giving examples of what women might do. Mm, yeah. 
Okay. Not what, not what men might do is masculinity gets destroyed or whatever. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. That the beast ends up killing the whore. And so Whoa. here's a reading of that. Wait, that, what? Hold on. Can back. you rewind like 15 seconds? Yep. Yep. Can you not, can you not talk over it for 20 <laughs> seconds? I'll try. <laughs> the patriarchal beast destabilizing and then the feminine destabilizing and of course, it has to be that way because one sex can't destabilize without the other. Now, what's cool about this from a conceptual perspective is that the beast ends up killing the whore. And so here's a reading of that is that the power mad state will draw you into its clutches with the promises of unbridled hedonism. Right? Says so like, you give I'll us the right power and we'll it. enable you to do whatever you want, right? Which means to fall prey to your short-term hedonic whims. But then the consequence of that, of course, is that the tyrannical state, once instantiated, makes any pleasure of any sort whatsoever, not only impossible, but forbidden. <laughs> Wait, okay, so he's saying if we fuck too much, then the government won't let us fuck anymore? Is that what he's saying? I lost the 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 train of thought at the end there. I think he may be trying to reference certain concepts in uh, 1984 regarding uh, sex and sexuality and um, uh, your adherence to the state, but I'm just guessing. Okay. I'm just guessing. And so, and then one more thing on top of that. So imagine we're in a situation where God has died. And so the thing that oh, you well, did not even get invited to the fucking <laughs> funeral. God damn it. I thought we were all God's children. I didn't even get anything. Not, not in the will, nothing. God has died. What does he, does he just mean like no one's religious anymore? Is that what he means? Situation where. What a fucking God melodramatic way so to put that. The thing that united us has disintegrated. So now we've fallen into a state of... Christianity doesn't unite us? Excuse me, what? ...powers arise in the <laughs> aftermath of the dissolution of what's unified. And here's some answers. The goddess or god of nature. The god of power. The god of hedonism, so that would be like motivational whims, short-term motivational whims, and the god of despair, right, of nihilism. So those would be powerful uniting stories that don't unite everything, but that, that carry a substantive amount of explanatory weight. You know, like Freud, for example. This is such this bullshit. So what he's saying is like, if we lose Christianity, we'll have to replace it with like everyone becoming a whore. <laughs> like, fuck off. Like, first of all, that wouldn't even be a bad thing. Like, it's not bad to be a whore. Secondly, no, no. Like, a certain percentage of people will be whores. Sure. But like, not everyone's going to be a whore. And it's not like not everyone is good at sex and no one would pay to fuck Jordan Peterson. I mean, that's the kind of work that, 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 that it costs no matter how much it pays. Explanatory. Also, if everyone was a whore, then like when two people slept together, who, which one would pay? There's a lot of logistical problems to this, this w imaginary world that 
that Jordan Peterson is coming up with here. Which is a, an ex explanation essentially of hedonism. And the biologists like Richard Dawkins, they fall into that trap as well, identifying even the human impetus to propagate across time with nothing more than the reproductive urge fundamentally. So anyways, imagine that there's a hierarchy of God, so to speak. You lose well, the mad at Dawkins. God. Dawkins, <laughs> Dawkins made fun of him again. God. So is he saying that like without Christianity, there would be nothing left but fucking? I suppose so. I've sort of started to tune this particular subject matter out in hopes of something funny coming in the future. <laughs> well, like, like, I don't know, man, like Legos are pretty fun and you don't have to fuck them. I mean, you, in fact, there can, but you probably shouldn't. No, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of sharp edges. As, yeah. As a recurring phenomenon in history, by the way, that paralleled the disintegration of the states upon which the, the states that were founded on that unifying vision. So then it collapses into the next highest unifying narratives. Certainly power is one of those. Hedonism is one of those, and then they have an alignment. There's another twist on that too, which is that one of the reasons, one of the things you might ask yourself is, why would you want to pursue power? And the answer would be, well, so I can compel other people to do things. And then you might say, well, compel them to do what? And then the answer, that's got to be something like, well, I want them to do what I want them to do. And so that way, Power well, that's becomes deep. the handmaiden of hedonism. I mean, it sounds like it's like, I and want I them to be Christian. That modern that's, radical left. Well, that's what I'm what getting he, from this. That's what he but, wants. But what, yeah. if, what, if, what, if, <laughs> what if you want power so that no one can tell you what to do? Yeah. Or what if you want power just so you can be comfortable? Like, what if you just want to be comfortable, like, on your own? And, like, you don't give a shit what other people do as well because they are characterized by an unholy union of absolutely licentious hedonism and in it, this insane insistence that power what does licentious mean and as you pointed out that also we'll just, just not worry about it the use of power okay. i mean I, I think that's also the only promise that the left in this context has been able to fulfill Meaning that the promise of tearing down the existing systems was that it was going to bring about human fulfillment, a kinder, better world, a more accepting and tolerant world, and unbridled hedonism. Well, it turns out that the last of those is the only one that has actually been fulfilled in the modern world. And the Fuck others yeah. are all lacking. The others are just not there because you actually need intermediate social institutions built from the ground up in order to actually provide for human fulfillment or human unity or any of these other things. But what you can do is if you wreck all the intermediate institutions and you turn everybody into an atomized individual, you can certainly guarantee them the pursuit of whatever hedonistic pleasure is available. Hell yeah. It's only for a time. I mean, as you mentioned, at a certain point, if there is to be any unifying factor at all, the power is going to have to crush that too. Because, I mean, and this is what Orwell says in 1984, essentially, is that if the hedonic will exists in opposition to other wills, it cannot be a Rousseauian general will. Right? There, there can't really be Rousseauian general will to just giant hedonic pleasure. Uh, that, uh, eventually, those hedonic pleasures come into conflict with one, each, one another. I've right. never heard of a sex party. Exactly. exactly. That's exactly <laughs> why. Well, they're also very... There's another reason, too. So even technically speaking... The I mean, wait. Drive, did you just ask if Ben Shapiro has never heard of a sex party? 
Like, you may have heard of it, but... Yeah, I didn't ask if he was invited. Okay. <laughs> ...are primordial. Sex, for example, or aggression. And one of the things that characterizes primordial drives, apart from their power and their multiplicity, which can put them in conflict, as you said, is their short-term nature. So one of the things Pajot has walked through with me is, this is a very smart idea, too. So Matt, Was the demon in the room with you when this happened? <laughs> the unifying structure of the meta-narrative de deteriorates, and what you get emerging are a variety of states of potential dominance. Can somebody AI some glow sticks into his hands and put techno music behind him while he's doing this? <laughs> He'd kill it at a rave if they just, just said, hey, just put, have these glow sticks and pretend you're doing a philosophical talk. And he, he would just really, everybody would be like, what a great dancer that weird old man is. Don't talk to him in the fucking chill room, but what a great dancer. <laughs> it kind of looks like he's trying to mime like fondling King Kong's balls. Really? Or just a, a, a really awkward uh, voguing by hedonistic whims, emotions and motivations fundamentally. Now they're very short term in their orientation because they want what they want in a single-minded way. Um, that's what a cyclops is, by the way. They want- uh, No, a cyclops want is a monster with one eye. That's what a cyclops, what? Now. I and did look up that word that he used, licentious. It just means lacking moral restraint, especially in sexual conduct. In quest, so, now, it means fun. That is that what I want now for me is not the principle upon which any social relationship can be founded, right? Because if it's for what if me, I want a social relationship and I want like fuck you, only you dumb now, fuck. which is by the way the identity claims of the radical leftists, right? If it's for me now, it's certainly not for my wife. It's certainly not for my children or my parents. It's not for the broader community. Like, there's no. What kind of goals does this guy have that where you're like our goals can't like align? Like, it's good for me and it's good for you. What is this? It's a win-win, baby. We have a term for this. It's called a win-win. <laughs> like, come on, man. This is like, I would just be like, my counterpoint is the idea of a win-win, and then he would just start bleeding out of his ear and die. <laughs> reciprocal altru there's no productive generous reciprocal altruism in atomized individualism and so then it can't then it can't survive so one of the things we are seeing i talked to louise perry about this too on the sexual revolution front is that even without government suppression of sexuality let's say what we're seeing is a wide-scale abandonment of sexuality such that this is particularly true in Japan and South Korea. I think it's 30% now of young people in Japan and Korea under the ages of 30 are virgins. We see it now that half of women in the West are unmarried at 30. Half of them won't have children and 90% of them will regret it. We see the wide scale. 90% of them, wait, half that don't have kids, 90% regret. I just don't know where you're getting this number. And I also don't know if 30% of people like being a virgins till 30 is like necessarily that high. I, I don't know. Like, I don't it's know. It's probably a bit higher than before. Like I have heard that like the current generations, uh, have the least sex out of like all of the generations since like the 1920s. But like, does that matter? 
and like, this this stuff having necessarily to be self-reported how do we know that we live in a we don't how do we know that that some of it might not be that we even if it's an anonymous uh survey people are sometimes inclined to lie just to make themselves feel cool right like yeah maybe people in the 70s were lying yeah that's what i'm saying people I mean, now it, doesn't, it doesn't have to it doesn't have to be one or the other but like as attitudes change, it might be that more people are just kind of okay with the fact that they're, you know, they're not afraid that the survey is going to make fun of them. Right. Yeah. Like, or they're, they're, they don't associate that necessarily with being, um, you know, bad or whatever. I, I don't know if it's on the upswing or not. People seem to think it is, but I'm just, these are like kind of self-reported surveys. So I just wonder if like, like younger people are just like, like, it's just less, like, especially among men, I wonder if it's like the idea that sex is some kind of masculine conquest having been like pushed down, like that it's not viewed in that way as much as it once was. So now it's like, if you haven't had sex, you don't feel so bad about it because it's not like some goal that you were trying to accomplish in the first place because like times change. I don't know if that's all of it, but it, it might be some of it. Yeah. And it could be temporary could be like just a fucking we an anomaly like the things fucking were just anomalous for a little while and they'll go back to normal later i don't fucking know but like and also like you'd have to show like before i was going to worry about it you'd have to show that that's a bad thing that that results in bad outcomes well in japan because like it japan it may because they are uh they don't really do a lot of immigration there so if people aren't fucking not having kids yeah, but like then there's society will decline and we like if we have to, if economic success uh, is going to be defined by uh, infinite exponential uh, growth, then, well, if your society is, if your population of your society is declining, how can you uh, compete in the the the, the con construct that a good economy means constant and uh, oftentimes exponential growth? You know. Sure, but infinite growth is not sustainable. As no, long I'm as not, we've got one uh, planet. I, oh, and here I thought it was, and that was what I was saying. Yeah, of course it's not. Yeah, but that's like that's that's <laughs> yeah. what it's constructed. And so yeah, like yeah. I like I I don't. What would it matter if five per, like Japan in fifty years has five percent less people than it does now? I don't know why it would matter. Yep. Like, but that's because of the the, the economic system, the economic system yeah. that we've we've constructed like doesn't allow for that, which seems crazy because it is. Yep. The only way we really accept uh, uh, like 5% of less people in a place than, uh, than there were before is that if America bombed the shit out of them. <laughs> <laughs> and the only, only America, right? Because uh, we'll be mad at any other country for bombing another country. Well, no, but I mean, we're just the we're allowed to do it. We're, no, we're just the best at it. <laughs> we're also allowed to do it because we're the one in charge of whether you're allowed to do it. <laughs> right pornography right and you could think about that as the ultimate expression of short-term hedonic gratification but or it's just a, an adult film consequence of that and the consequence of that like, is that is that the ultimate expression of short-term hedonic uh what did he call it gratification i don't think he's ever done nitrous oxide so maybe yeah like i would say like crack cocaine is probably more of of an expression of hedonic gratification 
Depends on how long it takes you to watch the porn, I suppose. Performed sexually? <laughs> you two acts? One and a half acts? So <laughs> I don't even think we'd have to see the state itself turn into a totalitarian beast and eradicate hedonism. I think that the pursuit of short-term desire, which is also, by the way, what psychopaths do, right? Like, here's something cool. I've looked at the literature, psychological literature on this in depth recently. So the that that hedonistic mating strategy of one night stand let's say that absolutely characterizes psychopaths i don't think that's and a mating so strategy one of the hallmarks of the development of antisocial behavior i've never had a one night stand with someone where i was like boy i hope i got her pregnant right it's more like <clears throat> it's more like um more like a, a friend for a night yeah, it's like, hey, let's go have fun, and then, like, hopefully there will be zero consequences, and, like, let's take some precautions so that we can hopefully ensure that there will be zero consequences. And frequent multi-partner sexual involvement. Hell yeah. Right, so the short-term mating strategy that characterizes hedonism is literally indistinguishable from the dark tetrad orientation, <laughs> which is manipulative, psychopathic, narcissistic, and sadistic. They had to include the, they had to widen Right, the, but what if you're sleeping around and you're a masochist? Nomological spectrum to include sadism to get all the co-occurring pathologies properly. All right, I can't fucking do this anymore. I had a very frustrating <laughs> beginning of the show. <laughs> I had some technical problems. And um, I just, uh, there's, I'm, we're not watching the rest of this during red light. We're not doing any of that. Um, <laughs> I think I'm going to read out the show because instead of the usual read out of the show, I'd like to issue an apology. I don't know what episode of Intellectual Dollar Tree this is, but I am, I'm very sorry about the thing we watched. I'm very sorry about my own behavior. I'm very sorry that HK went off into Narnia a couple times during it. <laughs> I'm sorry that the, the beginning seemed a little bit weird and the part right after the beginning kind of sucked and the part in the middle wasn't very good. The part towards <laughs> the end was not much better. And then um, I'm even sorry about uh, the way in which I'm reading the show out tonight, if I'm being completely <laughs> honest. Uh, but anyway, give us money. Uh, Patreon.com slash Echoplex or Eplex.store. This is Boomers. I'm, I'm going to change the lights in my room change the content of my drink and hopefully adjust my own attitude. And we'll, we'll be back with, uh, we'll be back with the post game. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also sorry that it took me that long to bring up the song.